Today's guest will be returning October 22nd, along with former guest Lena Sisko, to talk about statement analysis. It'll be on my YouTube channel. You can go find Eric Hunley on YouTube, or just go to erichunley.com, and it'll take you there. And you'll have an opportunity to ask your own questions of the guest. I hope to see you there, and check out the other live streams as well. Enjoy the show. I'll bring you Mark McClish. My name is Eric Hunley, and this is Unstructured where we have dynamic and formal conversations with some amazing people. Today, I'm super excited. We have Mark McClish. Now, this is awesome because a viewer on YouTube asked that I reach out to Mark because I had talked about statement analysis with Lena Sisko. I'm doing body language, and Mark is an amazing guy who, well, he was Secret Service, Uniform Division at one point. Then he decided to move over to the U.S. Marshals because I guess he got bored. And while he was there, he decided, well, you know what? Let me become one of the preeminent experts on a field called statement analysis and even trademark the name. How are you doing today, Mark? I'm doing good. Thanks for having me on the show. Now, what made you trademark the name out of curiosity? Well, I started teaching what I called statement analysis in 1991 at the Marshall Service Training Academy. I was teaching interviewing techniques, which included statement analysis. Mm-hmm. And then by the time I, I taught for nine years, when I left the academy around the year 2000 to come back out in the field, uh, more officers who some that I had trained, other people had trained in linguistic analysis, mm-hmm. uh, were retiring and starting to teach it. And I saw that some people called it forensic statement analysis. Some called it the... Uh, investigative statement analysis or linguistic statement analysis. So I thought, well, I need to trademark the name just statement analysis by itself um, since it's starting to become a pretty popular field. Okay. Now, was this originally something that was taught by Avinon Sapir? He taught, he was the first one, I would say, in the U.S. to teach a form of linguistic analysis to detect deception. He called it SCAN, scientific Mm -hmm. content analysis. And a lot of the techniques are based on some of the scan techniques. I would say half of what I teach is what I discovered through my studies, and half is probably some of the same techniques that he uses as well, as well as other people that teach any form of linguistic analysis. Okay, now what I really like about it is, and you can correct me if I'm going down the wrong path, but I like the aspect that you can look at statements over time You don't necessarily have to have the person there. You don't have to look at them and your own opinions and things like that may color your judgments when you're looking at somebody, whereas you could take a transcript and have no idea who they are, what they look like or anything else and come up with some kind of conclusion. Would that be fair? That'd be very fair. Yes. You don't need to see the person, hear the person, know anything about the person. Just give me a statement. And you'll be able to tell us we're lying or telling the truth. Now, the more they talk, the longer the transcript is, the easier it is to determine if they're being deceptive. But, yeah, we don't need to uh, have any background information initially just to see what's going on. Now, you can have fun with it, too, right? Um, I didn't. I looked at all your stuff, and I forgot to check, but things like Jack the Ripper. Have you ever done any of the Ripperology and looked at the Jack notes and determined – Hey, is that really Jack? Is that a cop pretending to be Jack? Was the person even there? Is he playing a prank on the cops? Have you ever done any, you know, had fun with that? I, 
years ago, somebody asked me, was doing a show on Jack the Ripper. I forget what it was. I think it was over in, in England. Uh, and asked me to take a look at some of the transcripts, but I don't recall exactly what what conclusions we came to at the time. But, uh, yeah, I mean, sometimes I'm looking for cases in the news, high-profile cases that everybody's familiar with. <clears throat> Excuse me. And then from time to time, if things are kind of law, I may look for something that's happened in the past, just to, if I can find some transcripts just to analyze them and post them on my website. Yeah, that would be so fascinating. I, I, you know, I think about like letters that go back and forth between uh, founding fathers, and I, I just feel like you could have kind of some uh, fun with it all. Now, out of curiosity, would you say that the first case of statement analysis is in the Bible? I think I read that in your book. Yeah, um, it has to do with King Solomon. And I think most people are familiar with the story. There were two women had small infant children, lived in her house, the same house together, slept in the same beds with their babies. And as the story goes, one of the mothers accidentally roared on top of her child and suffocated to death. Woke up in the middle of the night, found her baby died. She then allegedly swapped babies with the other mother. Well, in the morning, the other mother woke up, had a dead baby, recognized it wasn't her kid. Accused the other mother of swapping babies, she denied it. So they went before King Solomon. And what happened was, is one mother told her story, what had happened. And the other mother responded and said, no, the living one is my son, the dead one is yours. And the other mother quickly fired back and said, no, the dead one is yours, the living one is my son. And what I tell people is that we know that King Solomon brought out his sword uh, to determine who was lying and telling the truth. But he knew that before he ever brought out that sword because he analyzed their statements, because the Bible tells us that he repeated their statements. He said, let's see, you say the living one is my son, the dead one is yours, and you say the dead one is yours, the living one is my son. And since he's the wisest man in the world, I got to believe what he was looking at was the order they mentioned the living one and dead one. The first mother, all she wanted to care about was getting her son back, so she talked about the living one first, the dead one second. But the second mother was heavy on her heart, is that her son passed away that night. So she thought about the dead one first, the living one second. And so order is important. Yeah, that is something you definitely brought up. I think order, you've also brought up rules of three, if you will. Now, I want to touch on the rules of three, if possible, too, because linguistically, in writing, we tend to use rules of three. And in describing things, we tend to use rules of three. And it's not always necessarily being deceitful, but kind of a pattern that we remember. Threes and fives. Do you kind of try to take account for that when uh, people are spouting off like rules of threes? Like we did this and this and this and well, this and this and this. Well, any repetition is somewhat suspect, but it's uh, what I talk about is just the number three. I, I call it the number three, uh, the liar's number. Okay. When the set of people have to come up with a number, they will often choose a number that begins with three. Mm -hmm. And I'm not sure why this is. And again, this is just, you know, based on not based on any scientific research, but just something that uh, myself and other interviewers have seen over the years. And I think it's because uh, perhaps when we were kids, a lot of fairy tales and nursery rhymes used the number three. Sure. You know, Goldilocks, the three bears and three little pigs. And mm -hmm. so as an adult, when we have to come up with a number that we know is not true, Three is a number that will often pop into our head. You know, I left the house at three o'clock. I was robbed at $300. Three men attacked me. So I just tell people, if you hear the number three, uh, take a closer look at it. See if it is an accurate number. 
And if that's the only indication of deception, I'll conclude the truthful statement. But you have the number three other things that we look for in a statement, then it all it all starts to add up. That makes sense. And now I'm sure you're challenged on veracity of some of this. And I, I am curious, for example, statement analysis in, let's say, a court setting. I know that a uh, polygraph, for example, is not admissible in court. Right. What is statement analysis? You can uh, testify as an expert witness what you perceive, but is it actually something that can be used to charge somebody or is it an investigative tool? It's more of an investigative tool just to let investigators know if they have the right suspect or to eliminate suspects. Uh, but yes, the majority of the tidings could be used in a courtroom because it's not what I perceive. When we analyze a statement, we never interpret. It's just what is the person saying? You know, people's work, people mean exactly what they say. So when President Clinton, in talking about his grand jury testimony, said, I was bound to be truthful and I tried to be, well, the word tried tells us you weren't truthful. You know, the word tried means I attempted. He should have said, and I was. But that's what happens. People's words will betray them. So a lot of techniques, the majority, are based on the English language. Mm -hmm. Now, the number three, no, that wouldn't fly in the courtroom, obviously. Uh, but when you talk about pronouns, we know that we is a plural pronoun. So somebody else is with them if they use the pronoun we. You know, my is a possessive pronoun. You know, somebody says my victim. Well, they pretty much just confess. They just took ownership <laughs> oh, yeah. of that. I I guess that so. You know, so that's what. So a lot of techniques could be used. I get asked to speak or testify as an expert witness, but I tell them you don't need me. You don't need me to point out that tried means you didn't do it. Mm. You need me being a courtroom to show you what the witness is saying. And then as, as a prosecutor or defense attorney, you can then you know, challenge them to understand with their language. We're coming into a time of year that do you go ballistic watching presidential debates or do you just give up on them? Because I am, from what I have seen, I would say 95% of the time they are lying or they're obfuscating <laughs> because a good example would be, I'm a moderator. Let me ask, I, I ask you a question. The answer would be, let me ask you a question or things like that. Is that not a, a fine example of dancing around the truth in every which way? Oh, yes. A lot of times people will dance around the truth. Most people don't want to lie. And if you listen closely, they probably aren't lying, but they're doing just what you said. They'll dance around the truth. They'll use certain words or phrases that indicate they're skipping over something, You know, things that they don't want to tell us about. And so that's what we got to listen closely. But, yeah, I've always got my DVD player going, recording the debates and stuff like that, because it's just, you know, examples I can use in class then. I, I was going to say, do you uh, get called onto TV and, you know, go over them sometimes or do, um, I guess, reviews outside the class? Yeah. Every once in a while. And then a lot of investigators will contact me. You know, if they've got a statement they want to take, you know, are not sure if a person's being truthful or deceptive, they'll have me call me up and have me take a look at it. Okay, well that um, that's got to be good and handy. One one of your recent ones that I think you were going to do, but you ha you mentioned the link to all your analyses, but I didn't actually see it on the page. Was Chris Como? W which statement was that? Um, that's um, yeah. I have a famous cases page. Uh, he didn't make that page, but then I also have just in the news. Just if somebody makes one statement, not a whole mm. transcript, and that's that's where you'd find. Uh, his statement. And that had to do with, um, I think he was during his COVID time, he was mm -hmm. visiting his new house he was building. 
and a bike rider came by and saw he, he wasn't wearing a mask and Cuomo got in his face or something like that. But I forget. Well, I, I know what the uh, bike rider I determined was being truthful. Everything he said happened. Mm-hmm. You know, Cuomo was trying to you know downplay it a little bit there. Okay. Yeah. I, there were questions about Cuomo and whether he was even quarantining or not quarantining, if he had COVID or didn't have COVID. It, it, it was very interesting. I didn't know if that was what it was about because he's been known to go off on other things too. You're right. <laughs> I'm going to throw another one out there that I don't, I did not find on the page, but I know, for example, Lena Cisco, who I've had on before, and she's a huge admirer of yours in statement analysis. Amanda Knox. Have you ever looked into Amanda Knox? And do you have any thoughts? I haven't done any analysis of her, of her case. Um, you know, I'm familiar with it somewhat, you know, on the surface, it seemed a little hard to believe, you know, she was being truthful. Uh, but no, I've not analyzed any, any of her statements. Okay. I, I was hoping that you had, because she actually came up in the latest Malcolm Gladwell book as well. And the premise of that book, um, I believe it's um, talking to strangers is that some people don't act appropriately as we'd expect them to act. And that leads into somebody getting killed by a cop is the thesis that he opens with. And Amanda Knox is an example of it. And he was saying that she's, a lack of better words, just a kind of unpleasant personality. And that that personality led to everything with her. So I didn't know if you happened to see it or not, because... I'm speculating that you would say personality has little to do with statement analysis. Uh, for the most part, you're right. I mean, you know, we're, again, we're just looking at how people phrase their statement. There's several ways you can phrase a statement. Mm-hmm. And so why did they say it this way versus another way? Okay. And so personality, not a whole lot. Now, if somebody suffered suffer a traumatic uh, event, they're sure. traumatized, that's going to affect, you know, maybe how they phrase their statement. Or that any type of mental deficiency, that's going to play a factor as well. I want to actually go the other way on that, because as an interviewer, I sometimes interview people who are extremely intellectual or professorial even. And one of the things that I really appreciate is how you like to have people write things down because they have stops and starts a lot. And if they have a pen, they cross things out. So it kind of flags what they're starting to say. Does some of that get mitigated when you're talking to a PhD, for example, or that type who, if I could put it as nicely as possible, never comes out with a straightforward statement? They're always so careful and, and certain, trying to be certain about their language that they tend to back up and then start over again. And it's, it's actually quite excruciating to edit. Well, you know, a, a person's background does play into it or sometimes maybe cultural differences, even within the United States. Uh, but the bottom line is they may use a hundred dollar word instead of a ten dollar word. Uh, but it's still going to be there, that deception. Now, now, some people are better liars than others. Mm-hmm. I say there's no such thing as a good liar. There's just bad listener. <laughs> you know, if you listen closely, it'll be there. But some people don't give as many deceptive indicators. And so. Again, the longer the statement is, the more the longer the interview is, the more questions we can ask, the better feel we're going to get. Exactly, is this person being truthful or deceptive? You know what was going on. 
Okay, do you use things like a timetable? I believe you do. Um, use percentages, right, in your book? Like, how much time do they spend talking about what led up to the event, how much time they discuss the event itself, and how much time they talk about the aftermath? Yeah, with a written statement. Much easier to do with a written statement. You know, if you're analyzing a written statement, as soon as they start to talk about the incident, you just draw a line on the paper. And then when the incident is over with, you draw another line. And then you look at those three segments, like you said, the before, during, and after. And what we find is that the septic stories usually have a very short ending. You know, if they're making up the story, they set the stage, they tell you what happened, but they don't have a significant ending. Whereas in real life, there's always something going on after the incident is over with. You know, the police are called, people fill out forms, they take showers, they're comforted, and that shows up in their statement. So we look to see if it's a balanced statement. And But the big key is usually the septic stories have a very short ending. Okay, and that leads into actually a phone call um, by Karina Rosario in the um, Faith Hedgepeth murder case. Yes. A uh, 911 call. Now, in that, you had some problems with the call, if I recall. Do you want to go sure. into that? Yeah, we can. I mean, she started off her 911 call by saying hi which is very an improper greeting for a 911 call. I mean, usually it's just immediately tell the operator what's going on, what, what do you need. And then the other thing we look for in a 911 call is the plea for help. You know, what is the caller asking for? And an innocent caller is usually asking for help for a victim. This is what happened, need an ambulance, something like that. A deceptive caller who maybe, you know, killed the victim and then wants to make it sound like they found the body, sometimes will not ask for help. And that's what we had here. She just said, hi, I think I just walked in the door. And uh, I don't think she said my roommate. She said my friend is unconscious. Uh, okay. But doesn't, you know, and there's, you know, we expect if you're calling 911, you're looking for assistance. But she doesn't specifically ask for help or send an ambulance. And then later she'll tell us there's blood everywhere. So now mm. in the initial call, I mean, she seems somewhat rather calm. And yet you got a bloody crime scene. Uh, so there's a there's a lot going on there, even in that very first sentence. And then she used the word just, which to me is a unique word. I tell people to listen for the word just. It means a person most of the time is minimizing something. Uh, you know, if you walk into a restaurant by yourself, what the hostess or hostess should say is how many is in your party. But nine times out of ten, they're going to say just one. They're minimizing, you know, how many is in your party. Mm. And so she said, I just walked in the door. She's probably minimizing time. But is that an accurate statement? Did she just walk in the door or is she minimizing her actions? Because I think later on it was determined that she had sent a text message like an hour before she called hmm. 911 saying that, you know, Faith was dead. Oh, wow. And and, um, and so and there was evidence that, you know, she, she didn't she waited before she called 911. So maybe she didn't just, you know, walk in the door. Wow. That's that's creepy. Now. In a typical 911 call, because I haven't listened to a lot of them, would it be quite often that they be almost mid-conversation when the operator lands? Like, I can't I can't wake him up. I, he's not waking up, you know, that kind of thing. Would that be a typical call versus a, I got home at 6 and saw such and such happen that the narrative is a problem? Yeah, you expect the caller to, to uh, you know, be trying to, to help the victim out as much as they can. Now, again, people who react in different in traumatic situations, they react differently, but you expect them to have some sense of urgency. 
you know, she was a little timid. You know, the operator, I think, asked her, is she cold? Wanted her to touch her. And, you know, I think eventually she did do that, but she was a little hesitant to, to want her. I think she was half on the bed, half on the floor. So they wanted to put her maybe just on the floor and, and she didn't want to move the body. But, yeah, expect the caller to be participating because that's why they're calling to help this victim out. Is anything I can do before, you know, paramedics arrive. Okay, and you also mentioned just as a a qualifier, and a distancing is often a case too, right? Like somebody would say, for example, let's say that somebody is beaten bloody, they'd say, I didn't touch them. And, you know, kind of less than whatever it is. Yeah, I mean, it depends on, you know, when they say that. I mean, that, that, that's a good statement. I didn't touch them. You know, it's a good denial. It's just... If they just blurt that out, then that that's you know suspicious. Why would you say that at that okay. point in time? If they were asked, "Did you touch them?" then that would be a good good answer to a question like that. Okay, I'm always curious though on on distancing terms and things like you know we'll go back to Clinton like um, that woman <laughs> because of course he didn't know who she was. Now, are are there other times where it would actually make sense and still not necessarily be a bad thing like? If, um, I don't know how to explain, but if sometimes if people are in a conflict, like in a office with a psychiatrist, they'd be like, that woman, da, 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 or that man will never pick up his stuff. Um, are there times that it doesn't mean that much? Well, there are times, but we recognize that, yes, the word that indicates distance, the word this indicates closeness. And so what happens is sometimes people will use the word this when they probably should use the word that or not even use it. Like this man attacked me. Well, the word this indicates specificity, but why also show closeness versus a man attacked me. And so, you know, in the the case of Clinton, we expect him to create some distance between him and Mark Lewinsky. So like you said, he referred to as that woman. He could have just said Miss Lewinsky, but he also said that and include the word woman. Uh, to create some distance there. He used the word with as well, which also, mm. uh, the word with in any statement always shows distance within the statement. You'll see something before the word, you see something after the word. And the word with separates them. Okay. And I think you've mentioned too, like uh, terms like um, we, using the term we can sort of imply that the victim may not be a victim. They may in fact be involved. Yeah. I mean, everybody knows the pronoun we and us indicates plurality. Mm-hmm. And so you want to know who, who, who all was involved. But what people don't realize is that the word we and us always indicates a partnership. It doesn't mean they were best of friends. It could be a very limited partnership. But the word we always indicates that two people collaborate together and do something. So the question is, should there be a partnership? And probably nine times out of ten, yes. You know, we went to the game. We did this. But there's some situations, such as a sexual assault case or a kidnapping case, we would not expect the victim to use the pronoun we. You know, we went into the house and he assaulted me. No, it should be he forced me, he dragged me into the house. You know, a real victim's not going to use the pronoun we or us. And so we look to see, we recognize the pronouns there. We look to see, is it a justifiable use to use that pronoun? And again, most situations, the answer is yes, but there are some situations, you know, no. Okay, I had a question actually from uh, one of the viewers specifically for you, but what is the most revealing statement you regularly hear 
and smile to yourself because you know the person is saying one thing yet means another with an example? Uh, probably the most common one, I would say, especially when you're talking about politicians or just watching people on TV, is the person will answer the question. They'll give an answer, but they won't answer the specific question. Mm. And a lot of times this goes unnoticed by, you know, usually it's journalists that are interviewing somebody. Uh, and they'll ask a question. The person will give an answer, but they don't answer that specific question. You may recall uh, back in 2011, uh, New York City Congressman Anthony Weiner uh, mm-hmm. said his Twitter account was hacked and sexually explicit photos were being sent to a young lady. And he was doing his best to deny he sent those photos up himself. Sure. Terrible denialysis, terrible interviews by journalists. But at one point, Wolf Blitzer interviewed him and said, this is the picture. <clears throat> I'm sure you've seen it by now. Is this you? So that's the question he asked him. Is this you? And uh, Anthony Weiner gave a very long answer. Photos can be manipulated. We're going to get to the bottom of this. But he never said no. He never answered that specific mm. question. And Wolf Blitzer, you know, let him get away with not answering the question. So that's probably the most common one I see a lot. Interesting. Where would this one fall? And it just popped in my head. But I don't know if you remember um, Megan Kelly asking Donald Trump that question about essentially you've called women dogs and blah, blah, you know, a lot of other things. And he just looked up at her. He said, only Rosie O'Donnell. <laughs> I don't know if she asked the question though. She may have just made a comment like that. Uh, and so he wasn't avoiding the question necessarily. I, I don't remember the exact her statement or question what it was. I do remember that answer though that you said, but but still you're right. He's he's kind of playing it off, as you mentioned earlier, trying to, you know, d- dance around it by, you know, kind of joking saying Rosie O'Donnell, hoping that would end that series of that line of questioning. Okay, I only brought it up because I that actually was new to me. I had never seen somebody essentially do like a judo move like that. I mean, it was he answered it with a joke, with humor. Right. And that is that something that you've run into over time that that somebody is quick on their feet? Yeah, some people, you know, like I said are better liars and others are being deceptive more people are quick on their feet in an interview setting if somebody made a joke like that okay but i would ask the question again you know i'd get them to answer that question or explore their answer a little bit more but okay have you ever ever gotten it wrong i mean has there ever been a case that you you've felt one way but then as you discovered over time that know that you actually were wrong not to my knowledge, but now, in fairness, I don't want to take all the credit for it, is uh, investigators will ask for my help, and the agreement is I'll help you, but I'd like for you to get back to me with an update to see if I was helpful, you know, mm-hmm. did this person do it or not, and probably only about half the time do they do that. I'll sometimes try to contact them, so there may be times where I, I said this person did or didn't do it, and then I never heard what the outcome was, but most of the time when people do get back to me, yeah, there is an update. It's usually, yeah, he wasn't the guy or he was the guy. Well, Colt, since you're on top, then how about, is there a case out there you know of that frustrates you that you feel like everybody has gotten it wrong? Well, I mean, the first one that comes to mind is the O.J. Simpson case. Um, I mean, he did it. There's no doubt about it. But yet, you know, he's found not guilty. 
I mean, it was really the prosecution, I think, kind of blew that case. It wasn't no, so much the, the dream team, and you obviously had good defense lawyers, but, you know, the prosecution could have done a better job in presenting that case to the jury. Um, but that's the one that, you know, first thing that comes to mind is, is you know, he showed a lot of deceptive indicators. Um, even just common sense would tell you that. But then, uh, you know, for him to, for, to get off was a, a shame. Okay. Is there um, any other cases? Let me see. Uh, Casey Anthony, do you feel like justice was served on that one? No, that would be one. No, I don't think justice was served. And, yes, that one does bother me because, again, she showed a lot of deceptive indicators, um, contradict her own attorney. You know, she said that uh, her mother called 911 like 31 days later when she couldn't, you know, where's my granddaughter been? Mm-hmm. So then Casey was there. So Casey got on the phone with the operator, 911 operator. And Casey told the 911 operator, you know, um, I actually talked to my daughter today. You know, actually just, she said, I actually just talked to her. So she wants us to believe that 31 days later, she just talked to her daughter on the phone. Now, her defense attorney said that Kaylee drowned in the family swimming pool during opening statements. Mm. Offered no evidence for that, but that's what he told the jury during opening statements. So she drowned in a f- sw- family swimming pool. Uh, she talked to her daughter 31 days later. And what she did was she told the operator, uh, she, what she said was, I actually received a phone call today. But mm. she used the word actually. Oh, the, yeah. The word actually always means a person's making a comparison in their mind. And we don't know what she was comparing, but the first thing we go is the opposite. She said she received a phone call. She probably didn't receive a phone call. And that's what I think was the case here. She knows she didn't receive a phone call. She wants to tell the operator she did, so she unknowingly used the word actually. She should have said, I received a phone call today. But again, that's not what she said. She said, I actually received a phone call. That's interesting. So is actually is one of those words like, um, like but. Like anytime somebody says a sentence, da, 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 but, everything <laughs> before the but is irrelevant. Right. It's been said that but stands for behold the underlying truth. So just like you said, everything before it, disregarded. Now this is what you need to listen to. Can we go over a few of those? Because I, I think those are, are fun and maybe help uh, trigger us out. I know there's the actually, like you mentioned, I think, um, what is it? The other big um, swearing on it? Like I swear to God or honestly or. Yeah, there's certain words or phrases that indicate untruthfulness. Uh, and as you mentioned, like anytime people mention God, you know, that red flag should go up. You know, I swear to God, honest to God, uh, or I swear my mother's grave, uh, to be honest, frankly, really. Uh, those are words that indicate untruthfulness, not an absolute. I tell people about 50 percent of the time. You know, some people have a habit of using those phrases. Uh, some people, if they're being interviewed by law enforcement, may just assume you're not going to believe me. So I have to use those phrases to convince mm-hmm. you of it. But if you hear it, definitely you should ask a few more questions about it because a lot of investigators will will testify that, that yeah, I was interviewing a guy and as soon as he said I swear to God, it turns out he was you know being deceptive. Okay, and I imagine, and this is where I find statement analysis just fascinating. And I would watch things, and in your book you talked about how movies will be ruined for you and television <laughs> shows. I didn't realize it, but I would almost always get what was going to happen. 
I mean, almost without fail in this. And it would be somebody would say something and I would just make a smart ass comment like, yeah, you didn't do it at five because you're too busy locking the car to kill him over here. <laughs> or, or, or what, I don't know what it is, but I would always fill in like a second sentence or what I thought was an incomplete thought that would do it and it would just pop in my head. So I'm wondering if I intuitively was doing statement analysis. Probably. And that's what I tell people that, you know, I'll show statements or maybe two statements and which one's true, which one's false. And as a group, they can usually get it right every time, which one's being deceptive. But they may not know why it's deceptive. It just sounds like it. And then with statement analysis, it helps you put your finger on it because of a certain word, a certain phrase. That's why we know they're being deceptive. And so, yeah, you can watch, as you mentioned, a fictional movie. And even though they're actors, you know, the, the, the writers know which actor is going to lie, and which is going to tell the truth. Uh, have the ones that are going to lie, lie just like real people do in real life, you know, and use that same type of language. They they may not answer the specific question. They may answer a question with a question or something like that. So that's actually good writing then, I would think. It's good writing, but they're they're thinking like a liar, so they just say it like a liar would. <laughs> right. Well, I, mean, I mean, at least it's real. I mean, they can, there's nothing right. worse than, oh, no, it's the evil twin that we never saw. <laughs> you know, that, that, that's kind of irritating. Now, on that, um, I'm leading into it. I kind of am interested in language. Is that what attracted you to this? And I bring it up because I've had like uh, Jim Fitzgerald on it, and he was instrumental with catching um, the Unabomber. Hmm. And what was fascinating about him was his English was perfect. And his manifesto caught him because he had a superior use of language than anybody else in the country, probably. And what tripped him up was there's a saying, you can't have your cake and eat it, too. Right. But he said, you can't eat your cake and have it, too. Right. What's interesting about that is everybody's like, oh, that's weird. And he wrote a letter at another point that had that same phrase in it. But the irony is that his use of the phrase is more correct. That was the original usage of it. Mm-hmm. So is that, in essence, some of what you're doing is parsing language and words? You're definitely parsing you know, at language and words. You got to listen closely you know, to what people are saying. As I mentioned, there's several ways you can phrase a statement. So you know, why did he say it this way versus another way? And again, you know, some people, if they're more educated, may use more proper grammar versus mm-hmm. somebody on the street using street language or something like that. But it's it's still there. We still have, you know, words, you know, have a definition. They mean something. We have the rules of grammar we have to abide by. And so when people start violating the rules of grammar, is it because of poor grammar skills or is it because they're being deceptive? Mm. You know, and so that's what we're we're still, you know, definitely, as you mentioned, we're parsing their words and listening very closely to what they're saying. Okay, because I think you've brought up um, in the book and other times that somebody would say, um, the car, my Ford Fairlane, my car, the car, depending on, on where where it was and that that can be a, an indicator. Yes. I mean, my car, absolutely. They're taking possession of it. My is a possessive pronoun. Mm-hmm. When they call it the car, they're no longer taking possession of it. And so we, we look to see, well, why did the language change? 
uh, you know, changing language indicates deception unless there's a justification for that change. And so I've seen, you know, statements where I'm driving my car and somebody jumped in it, you know, made a carjacker. Mm-hmm. And now they call it the car. Well, that's probably because they got this knucklehead in this car with them that they don't want them there. It's still their car, but now they call it the car because it's been damaged, damaged somewhat. Or you'll see that traffic accident. It's my car. And then once it gets damaged, now it's the car because, you know, they no longer take possession of it because it's been damaged. And so that's acceptable. But then other times we see it's an indication of deception when they start calling it the car because they're no longer taking possession of it or or any other item it may refer to. That makes sense. When my um, when I ha- had a car viol- uh, broken into, I felt like it was violated, and I was immediately right. distancing. So, yeah. Yeah, that- it's a natural thing. Yeah. Is that, and I believe that was instrumental with Susan Smith? Yeah, and her confession now. What she talked about was she was going to, in her written confession to the sheriff, she said she was contemplating suicide, drowning all three of them. And so she said something, if I'd have gotten to my car, uh, and started to go down the ramp, and I stopped and started to go again and stopped. And then she said, I got, I got out of the car and stood by the car, nervous wreck. So it went from my car to the car. So why did the language change? Now, in my mind, it tells me that she knew what she was going to do. She knew she could see that car going down the ramp into the water, her two boys trapped in it. And so naturally, wouldn't want to take possession of that car. And so I think it indicated that she knew what she was going to do, that, you know, this idea of drowning all three of them, suicide, probably really wasn't on the table. I think her current boyfriend didn't want to have kids, and that contributed to her drowning her own two boys. So even in her confession, she's being a bit uh, deceptive. Okay, well, perfect. And while we're talking about possessions, you have a couple books out there. I know you're lying. And don't be deceived. And I know you were lying as an audio, and that's how I was able to... um, Read it. And I always want to thank authors for putting their books in audio because it makes it more accessible for the rest of us who have a day job or have to drive or, you know, try to get whatever we can in where we can. Now, do you have any kind of training or anything available to make me and others smarter at this? I do have some on demand training. It's equivalent to uh, my one day seminars. It's about eight hours of training. Uh, you can log on anytime you want. Uh, Take the train at your own pace. There are some written st- or some statements to analyze. Hmm. Compare your analysis with a completed one to see how well you're doing. There's some uh, short quizzes. I mean, it's an open book test. Everybody passes it. But there are some quizzes to make sure you understand uh, the techniques taught in that lesson. And then the final uh, test statement, I have them send me their analysis using an online form. I analyze it and give them some feedback on how well uh, they're doing. Oh, awesome. Now, I also have what is a live stream where I'll bring on guests again, and I allow the audience to ask questions directly in the uh, chat. And I was wondering if you might be available for that in the future or be open to that. Yes, I would be open to that. Fantastic. Hopefully I can get that scheduled. I think it'd be a lot of fun and maybe bring you out with Lena or or, or something like that, because it's fun getting more than one person on that and getting deep in discussion. Now, everything, everybody can find everything about your courses at statementanalysis.com? That's correct. Well, perfect. Mark, thank you so much. This has been wonderful. Eric, thank you for having me on. Thanks for listening. And if you like what you heard, please consider subscribing. 
for free. And I mean for free. It is always free. There's no billing, anything else. You can subscribe in your player of choice, which is probably right in your hands. Or you can go to unstructuredpod.com. And there are plenty of links there. Thank you so much. And in the spirit of sharing, here's a couple more shows you may want to check out. What was that like? might just be the most intriguing podcast you'll ever hear. Each episode is a conversation with a regular person who's been through an extremely unusual situation, like Jeremy, who was bitten by a rattlesnake, or Jennifer, who accidentally killed someone, or Luke, who got caught smuggling cocaine. Real people in unreal situations. Listen and subscribe at whatwasthatlike.com. Laughter. Tears, celebrities, newsmakers, anecdotes, and recipes. Wait, I was wrong. They don't do recipes. You can't hear food. <clears throat> Join host Randall Kenneth Jones, a man who is not the original cowboy in the village people, and announcer Susan C. Bennett, the woman who is the original voice of Siri, every week on Jones.show, a podcast so accessible its name is a web address, www.jones.show.